You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So the last time we taught First Peter was in 2012. Probably most of you guys weren't even around back then. Tonight, we're going to talk about inexpressible joy. But before we just jump right into the passage... Usually what we do whenever we exposit or go through an entire book of the Bible is we just go through an introduction of the book to kind of understand what the purpose of the letter was, who wrote it, things like that. So 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, right away, the author identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we know quite a bit about the apostle Peter. He was among Jesus' 12 disciples. And he was prominent among the disciples. He was often one of the guys who was the spokesman for the disciples, whether they liked it or not. He was the kind of guy who just liked to talk and you know, his philosophy was when you're confused, when you don't know what to do, the best thing to do is just to talk, open up your mouth. We all know the type of person that's like. And one of the things that really characterized Peter was that Peter was really up and down emotionally. You know, some of us, when we read about Peter, we can identify with him because, you know, on the one hand, Peter had these really high highs where it seemed like He was actually speaking the direct revelation of God. At other times, he was saying things that sounded like it was coming from the mouth of Satan. And so Peter was the kind of guy who was just all over the place. He had extremes. And in fact, his name was indicative of his personality. His Hebrew name was actually Simon which meant to vacillate. And so one of the things you'll notice about Peter is, on the one hand, he is very loyal to Jesus, he is committed, and then on the other hand, you find him cowering or compromising in his faith. And yet, one of the wonderful things we see is that Jesus sees right through Peter's rough exterior, this, you know, working-class fisherman, who's all over the place emotionally. And he says to him in Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, from now on, your name will be Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And Jesus is using this word play because the Greek word for rock is actually Petra. And so he said, instead of being the kind of person who is flaky and unstable, What I'm going to do is I'm going to actually build my church on the stability of your character, which I'll develop. Now, one of the things you'll notice about Peter as you read through the Gospels is that he will say things like, Jesus, I will go even to death to follow you. And then in the very next breath, he is denying Jesus three times before Jesus is crucified. And so Peter here, sometime later near the end of his life, is a man who has been transformed by God. He is a stable person who's withstood a lot of persecution in his life. 
And Jesus successfully built the church upon his shoulders and his character. And so what we have here is a picture of stability. Now, some critics of the Bible have actually questioned Peter's authorship of this book, partly because when you look at the book of 1 Peter, the Greek language is actually some of the most polished Greek that we have in the New Testament. And skeptics look at that and they they raise their eyebrows as to how a working class fisherman could ever write Greek at this level. One of the passages they would cite is Acts chapter 4 verse 13, where the Pharisees were saying when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So skeptics of the Bible would look at something like this and say, see, these guys were unschooled, they're ordinary. How could Peter possibly write something as polished as the book of 1 Peter? But again, if you look at the context of Acts chapter 4, the ruling council of the Jews who were the ones saying this stuff weren't talking about Peter's language or his fluency in Greek. They were talking about his command of the Old Testament scriptures. And so this would be more akin to somebody saying in our modern day, it's amazing that this person who is maybe unschooled in law was able to present such a articulate slam dunk case in front of the Supreme Court. Also, Greek was the trade language of the ancient world. So typically you had maybe a dialect or a language that you spoke, but then typically you also were able to speak Greek because that's how people communicated in the ancient world. It was the Greco-Roman world after all. So Peter likely was bilingual. And even though Aramaic was probably his first language, he was also fluent in Greek because he needed to do that in order to trade and operate business. I went to Montreal a few years ago, and it's in the part of French-speaking Canada. And what was sort of surprising is whenever you would walk into a restaurant or, or in a store, the first thing that the, the people who own the restaurant or the business would say to you is bonjour. And I, of course, I'd respond and say bonjour, which is the extent of the French that I actually know. And then I'd start talking English, and then they realize, okay, he's not French speaking, so he, they'd start speaking English to me. And so likewise, Peter was likely fluent in both of these languages. And also, Peter's level of education doesn't indicate his level of intelligence. We know people who don't have undergraduate or master's or doctorate educations, and yet are brilliant people. Think about people like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. I mean, the fact that they never got their undergraduate is no indication of their intelligence, clearly. And so Peter had about 30 plus years to refine his Greek and to learn how to become a great communicator. And so probably within this time period, his Greek was, was elevated through his preaching and his letter writing. Now, Peter addresses this to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. And this word scattered is actually the Greek word diaspora, which we actually use today. 
to describe people who are displaced from their homeland. But in the ancient world, the diaspora was typically synonymous with the Jewish people who are living in Babylon, who are exiled from their land, displaced. And so Peter is using this imagery to speak to largely non-Jewish believers and saying, you guys are like the diaspora here on earth. He touches on this theological concept that our heavenly citizenship is in heaven. And so really, we're just like foreigners passing through this land but our true home is in heaven. And that has real implications for the way that we live now. Later in his letter, in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among non-Christian people that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. Notice he says, you guys are like foreigners and exiles in this land. You know, if you're a foreigner, you're a temporary resident here in the U.S., you don't plant down roots here knowing that you're going to go back home. You don't start investing here and trying to build your life here knowing that within a few years you're going to be back home. And so in the same way, God urges us to see that we're just merely passing through this life. And for us to try to grasp on to things of this world is foolish because one day we're going to receive our inheritance, which is in heaven. He then says, to those who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these cities were located in a region that was then called Asia Minor. That would be like modern-day Turkey today. This was a fairly big region, probably the size of California, and it was very diverse. For example, Galatia was filled with people who were originally from West Europe, from where modern-day France is, and they were the Gaul people who then migrated east to Galatia. So I guess it sort of makes you wonder, why is Peter talking specifically to these people? Well, it turns out he probably had a connection to these people. When you look at the book of Acts, chapter 2, when Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem to the multitudes of people who are there to celebrate one of their festal days, festival days, we're told that people from Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia were all present. And that there were actually 3,000 people who came to Christ that very day because of Peter's message. And so what happened likely was that these people stayed in Jerusalem for some time, maybe a few months or even a year, and then after getting the equipping they needed from the apostles and learning from them, they then went back to their homelands and planted churches there. So it may be that the connection Peter had to these people was that these were the people he led to Christ 30-plus years earlier. Okay. Now that we're done with our introduction, we have that in the rearview mirror. We want to talk about two things for the remainder of our time. The first is we want to talk about the multifaceted nature of salvation. And secondly, we want to talk about what kind of response should we have to that. You know, when you think about, for example, a 
a gem that's cut. You know, when you take it out into the sun and you turn it, you can see how the light plays with each side of the gem, and it, it gives off its brilliance. And so in the same way, when we think about our salvation, it's not just that God rescues us from eternal damnation. It's much more than that. It's multifaceted. And Peter gives us three facets of our salvation. He says in verse 2, To those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace to you be yours in abundance. So the first facet of our salvation is that we have been chosen. I think this is an amazing aspect of our salvation, that God chose us before the foundation of the world. You know, some of us really struggle with self-worth. We look in the mirror and we don't like what's staring back at us. And yet, who we are in Christ contradicts what we think about ourselves oftentimes. God says that you are precious in his sight, that you are valuable in such a way that he would even send his own son Jesus to come and die for you. And so God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, some teachers of the Bible look at this and say, well, what we have here is God's sovereign election. In other words, before the foundation of the world, what God did was he sort of carved out and said, these people are going to be my elect who I'm going to save, and then the rest that I create, I'm just going to simply discard to eternal damnation. And so really, what you have here is more of a deterministic view of salvation that God sort of arbitrarily chooses those who are in and then arbitrarily chooses those who are out eternally. And yet, Peter says here that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's an important point to make. That it's according to his foreknowledge that he knew beforehand the kind of choices we would make and the kind of response we would have to the message of Christ. And so it's on that basis, then, that he is able to choose us. Now, you might say to yourself, what's the difference between God's foreknowledge and his sovereign choice? Well, I think there's a big difference. You know, imagine if you were in a high-rise building and you were on the 13th floor and you were looking down and you saw that there was this car that was just, it seemed like it's, it's losing control. And it's speeding up and is headed right toward a lamppost. And you predict, based on your vantage point, that this car is going to crash into that lamppost. And it does. As you, you, know, you just wince in pain watching this happen. Now, did your foreknowledge, your prediction that this would happen cause that accident? No. And in the same way, God does not cause us to reject the gospel of Christ or compel us to receive it. Instead, he sees the way that we would use our free choice. Now, how God does this remains a mystery. It's, it's, it's difficult to even wrap our minds around God's foreknowledge, but it's possible that what's happening here is that God actually exists out of time. And so it could be that God sees kind of like the parade, you know, the beginning and the end at the same time. And so he realizes how 
we would choose throughout our life. So yeah, it's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What also sort of gives us confidence that God isn't just this master puppeteer making us believe that we actually have free will when we actually don't, are passages like this, Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus is standing over the city of Jerusalem, and he cries out, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I long to gather your children together, or long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you are unwilling. Notice, we don't have here God's sovereign choice where people essentially have to concede to God's foreknowledge or his will. Instead, we see that Jesus is attempting to try and draw people close to him, and yet they reject him. And so, yeah, our free will is real. Our choices matter. He says then that we have been chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, this word sanctifying is kind of like a church word that we don't really use too often today. Sanctifying, do you use that in your modern, you know, in your common language? The word sanctify simply means to make holy, which doesn't really help out either. When we think about the word holy, it has a lot of cultural baggage. We think of people who are holier than thou, people who are good people who think they're better than everybody else. And yet, this word sanctifying actually means to set apart or to make distinct. And so it's through the Spirit of God that He sets us apart or makes us different than the rest of the world. And that's one of the themes that comes up over and over again throughout the book of First Peter, is that we're to live in such a way that is different from the rest of the world. And so how does the Spirit make us different or make us distinct from the rest of the world? First of all, he says to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Before you met Christ, before I met Christ, I know that my impulses, my drives, my pulsating desires were like a runaway freight train. There was nothing that I could do to stop it. It's like I basically had to just give in to it, right? And so I think, what happens is when we come, in, come into a relationship with Christ, something amazing happens. The Spirit of God actually comes to dwell or live within us. And so now we have this new influence in our lives. We do things that we normally would have done before we met Christ, and we start to realize, wait, wait a second, that, that doesn't feel as good or, or right anymore. What's happening to me? And so we have... This new, sense, you know, this new sensitivity to what is morally right and wrong, and we also feel this new guiding presence leading us towards spiritual truth. Also, he says that the sanctifying work of the Spirit uh, has sprinkled us with Jesus' blood. Now, I think a lot of modern people look at this and they're just like, you know, the thing that just drives me nuts about Christianity is this whole talk about the blood. What is up with the blood? I mean, it just sounds so primitive, like there's this 
ancient God who needs to be appeased. And so in order to expiate this God, we need to sacrifice blood. Dang. And yet what the, New, the Old Testament tells us is that from the ancient perspective, blood meant life. You know, when ancient people slaughtered animals for, for food or for whatever reason, they noticed as the blood drained out of the animal that the life actually left that animal as well. And so they equated blood with life. And so one of the things that's really interesting is that in the Old Testament, there are all of these sacrificial offerings that you could do. And one of the most important sacrifices that was offered in ancient Israel was what's called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would assemble the entire nation of Israel, and he would take two goats, one that he, or they, were, they, were, they were spotless, and he would place his hands on one of the goats and, and let it out into the wilderness. And the other one, he would take his hands, confess the sins of the entire nation onto this goat symbolically, and then he would slaughter that animal and take its blood into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was located. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, if you um, can't really imagine or if you've never looked at the Old Testament, it kind of looks something like this. It was like a box. And what you had above it were two angels staring down at the mercy seat, which is that cover between the two angels. And within the Ark of the Covenant were the contents of uh, that God told them that they need to put in there. They were items that represented the rebellion of the nation of Israel. And so what would happen is the high priest would take some of this blood and then he would come in and blot it or sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. And thus, symbolically, the angels who are looking down at the wrongdoing of the people now looked at the innocent blood that had been shed. And so what we have here is a magnificent picture of what Jesus would ultimately do. We're told that God took on human flesh in the man Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life and voluntarily sacrificed his life to die as an innocent victim so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be washed clean of our moral wrongdoing. And that is the message of Christianity. If you're new here tonight and you zone out for the rest of what I have to say, listen to this part. This part's for you. What this represents is the love and mercy of God expressed through his son Jesus. And what the Bible says is that if we place our faith in what Jesus has done, God will forgive us and give us eternal life, salvation. Well, he goes on in verse 3 and 4 to outline a couple more aspects or facets of salvation. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, 
spoil, or fade. So the second facet of our salvation is that we have this new birth, that God gives us this new life in Christ. Now, when we talk about new birth, this comes from the biblical language of being born again, which again, I think has a lot of cultural baggage. Some of us grew up in very strict fundamentalist churches And we remember vividly as a young person, the preacher yelling at us, you must be born again. Or, you know, you walk down to campus, at least when I was an undergrad, and you have, you know, preachers on the the oval who are shouting at people, you know, you must be born again, you heathen whoremongers, you know, just, just insulting people. And so that has sort of twisted or distorted our view of this picture that God wants to paint of this new life, this new birth that we can experience in Christ. Really, what this is referring to is an interaction that Jesus had with this man named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And he tells Nicodemus, he says, you will not see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And he describes how This birth is a spiritual rebirth. In the same way that birth brings about physical life to us, we must undergo a spiritual rebirth in order to have spiritual life because we remain dead in our moral wrongdoing. He also says, too, that uh, finally we have an inheritance, which is the third facet of our salvation. And that it can never perish, spoil, or fade. So this is an inheritance that we could never deplete. It's an inheritance that we can never squander. It's an inheritance that will never fade. Really, our inheritance is untouched by death, unstained from evil, and unimpaired by time, according to Peter. And so what we have here is a guaranteed inheritance Once we arrive in heaven. He elaborates on this more in verse 4 and 5. He says, This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he says that God's power actually shields this inheritance to preserve it for us. And what this is communicating to us is the fact that we have incredible security in our salvation. Now, again, some students of the Bible look at this and they worry. You know, if we go around telling people that you can't lose your salvation no matter what you do, you can't out your way out of God's grace, we're essentially handing people a license to go and do whatever they want. Then we're going to have sin all over the place, especially in the church. Well, what we find is that if we bring in the fear-threat motive, fear only leads to compulsion, whereas love leads to obedience. You see, one of the things that God wants from us is not to do things because we're afraid of him, but he wants us to do things because we're appreciative of all the things that he has done for us. You know, imagine if I was walking into the kitchen of my house and I'm going to go and grab a drink and my wife, who's sitting there at the table, says, hey, 
um, I notice that the grass is getting kind of long. Can you mow it this weekend? And just as I turn around to look at her and respond, I notice sitting there in front of her is a 45 caliber pistol. Now, that would sort of change the tone of the conversation. You know, had that, if that pistol wasn't there, I would have just done it because I appreciate her, I love her, and I want to try to do anything I can to make her life a little bit easier. But now that the pistol is on the table, I'm a little worried. And I'm like, so what's, what's that doing on the table? And she's like, just in case you say no. <laughs> now, here's the thing. You know, fear can cause people to do things in the short term, but it certainly cannot cause people to be obedient in the long term. You see, one of the things that we have is incredible security, and God wants us to follow him in that context, in that environment. Jesus says in John 10, verse 28 through 30, he says, I give my followers eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and, and the Father are one. You, know, you can imagine Jesus saying, Nobody's going to come in here and snatch away my followers' eternal life. They're going to have to get through me, and they're going to have to go through the Father if they want that. And so what we have here is incredible security that God shields this inheritance that he has stored up for us. Verse 6 and 7, Peter switches gears now and starts talking about what we should do in response to this great salvation. He says, in all of this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So he says that you guys are undergoing various trials. And what we know from this book is that one of the major struggles that they were facing was persecution. Many of them were having their properties seized. Many of them were being beaten. Some were being killed for their faith in Christ. This is so far removed from our experience as Western people. And yet, many people throughout the world, followers of Christ, suffer the same things that Peter's describing here. According to Christianity Today, over 170,000 Christians die each year in the developing world because of their faith in Christ. Now, one thing I want to say here is that even though it takes incredible courage to die for Christ, it takes a lot of courage to live for Christ too. You know, some of us have taken steps of faith to open up our mouths and to share the message of Christ with people, and all we've experienced is rejection, mockery. You know, it even hurts uh, more when we are trying to share with close friends or family members, and what we're met with is them saying, you know, I really don't like how much you've changed. Or they say, you know, you're just being fanatical following God like this. What's wrong with you? 
And so we, a lot of times, feel discouraged. Maybe we even want to quit because we're facing this, this resistance from people. But the type of trials that Peter's talking about expands beyond just persecution. That's why he says all kinds of trials. And these would include physical illness, disease, injuries. You know, some of us have gotten crushing diagnoses recently. Diagnoses that have altered our lives. Diagnoses that have shortened our lifespan. You know, for some of us, we are injured and we're recovering and it's taking months. It's difficult having to rely on people. Difficult being this feeling of being incapable. And so some of us are struggling and wrestling through these different trials. You know, for some of us, it's relational. Where maybe we have gotten into an argument with a close friend and now we feel this incredible friction between us and somebody that we feel very close to. And that is creating a lot of pain in our lives. For some of us, it's marital conflict. We don't seem to see eye to eye with our spouse. We constantly are fighting with them. And that's creating a lot of hardship in our lives. For some of us, it's loneliness. We long for companionship, and yet we don't find it. And we wonder whether God's going to provide for us. For some of us, it's financial. Either we lost the job due to COVID, or maybe we had some money saved up, and then some unexpected expense came up, and it just completely wiped out all of our savings. And now we're living month to month, and even are living at a deficit. And we're wondering how we're going to pay our bills. For some of us, it's emotional distress. Some of you struggle with mental health issues. And then the pandemic came into your life, interrupted everything, and made things even worse. And so some of us are laboring under crushing depression. We're struggling with debilitating anxiety. And you know what's worse is that sometimes people give us trite advice. You know what you need to do? You just need to exercise more. Just eat better. Why don't you just work harder and maybe you'll stop thinking about yourself so much? You know, just why don't you just take some St. John's wort? You're like, oh yeah, well, I'll just put some of that St. John's wort on my broken leg. I'll sprinkle it on my credit card. I'll take it and maybe I'll feel better, right? You know, really what we want is for somebody to come and empathize with us and listen to us and enter into our suffering. And one of the things that God promises is that he knows exactly what you have gone through. Contrary to other world religions where the gods are detached from human suffering, the God of the Bible has entered into our lives and has experienced the very things that we have experienced. And he can can understand that. He also says... These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise. So Peter is using this vivid illustration from ancient metallurgy. Now, I'm sure a lot of you guys are experts in that, so I don't have to explain this to you. But for those of you like me who don't know that much about it, 
and had to research it, what he's describing here is this process of refining gold. And it's called the smelting process where you typically will take gold, an ingot, and you will put it into a crucible. And then you heat it up. And what happens is as the gold becomes molten, the dross or the impurities float to the top and you take something and you skim that off. And you have to do this several times because you can't get all of the impurities in one pass. And so you have to do maybe three, four, five, six passes in order to get from 10 karat gold to 24 karat gold. And so in the same way, Peter's saying the kind of suffering that you are experiencing is like this refining process where God is using the suffering. He's not causing the suffering to come into your life. He's using the suffering that has entered your life to refine your character, to knock off some of those imperfections, and to grow you more into the likeness of Jesus. And so he says, as a result, in all of these things you greatly rejoice. In your salvation that God has freely given to you. In the knowledge that he can use even the worst suffering for good in your life. You can greatly rejoice in those things. Finally, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You get a preview of what life with God will look like following him here. And it's a life filled with inexpressible joy. Yes, there are going to be periodic and acute times of suffering and trial in your life. But if you zoom out and look at the whole picture, God has given you a life of real joy and happiness. Maybe you're not rejoicing, but you have ample reason to rejoice if you're a follower of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You know, one of the things that I have noticed as I've continued to follow God over the years is that there's a growing sense of genuine love for Jesus Christ in my heart. And it's something that I continue to cultivate and it's something that drives me when I run into really hard times. He says, even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You know, Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, encountered a man named Thomas. And Thomas is known as a doubting man, a skeptic. And he said, I won't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his side and in his hands. And a few days later, guess who shows up? Jesus rolls up on him. He's like, you were saying, Thomas? And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, he said, blessed are you now that you see, but blessed are those who believe and do not see. You know, some of you have been investigating Christianity for some time now. And you've looked at all this evidence and yet you have not yet believed. I challenge you to turn to Christ and experience the salvation that he freely offers 
through his death on the cross. Yeah, I think one of the things that is most painful, Lord, is um, suffering and feeling like it's just totally senseless. And we're grateful that you tell us that we don't suffer in vain, that you can actually use suffering for incredible good in our lives, that you are with us in the midst of suffering, that you have not abandoned us, and also that you can um, one day show us the, the great work that you have done through our suffering. And so we, da- we, we take great consolation in that knowledge that you care about us even when we're suffering most. We also just um, want to rejoice greatly in the fact that you give us salvation, Lord. Thank you that you have uh, spared us the fate of eternal separation from you. And I pray for anyone who hasn't experienced that salvation, that they would just turn to you in their hearts, that they would have an encounter with you right now where they receive the forgiveness that you freely offer through through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for anyone who did that in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.